This is Love and Revolution Radio, covering the heart of change and changes of the heart, featuring stories of ordinary, extraordinary people waging struggle for love and revolution. There are a lot of things going on right now to demonstrate that our world is in a in a state of instability, and I think we need to start looking at how do we address those things on new paradigms, not based on the old paradigms, but in a new way that's going to create some type of safety and security for all, and recognize the significance of um, our connection to our ecosystem. It's a brand new show for a brand new year. This week on Love and Revolution Radio, your co-hosts Rivera Sun and Sherry Mitchell set our intentions for this brand new weekly broadcast, including how we'd like to cover the importance of stories, myths, question everything, and rethink every aspect of our lives from the small stuff we don't sweat to the large stuff we can't ignore. I'm your host, Rivera Sun. We are here recording Love and Revolution on a snowy and chilly day at two ends of the country. I'm your host, Vera Sun, in Taos, New Mexico, and I'm talking with my wonderful co-host, Sherry Mitchell, in snowy and blizzardy Maine. How are you doing, Sherry? I'm doing well. It's actually sunny here right now. The blizzard is going to hit tomorrow, it seems. Oh, it's a rumor of a blizzard. You know, a rumor of a blizzard. Well, it depends on which part of the state you're in. There may be a blizzard somewhere else that I'm just not aware of. (laughs) That's pretty much the weather report for Maine year-round. Blizzards happening somewhere. You know, I think it's uh, not an accident that Love and Revolution starts out with a weather report. It's kind of like taking the barometer of the changes of our times. But also, right now in our world, it's, it's very important to pay attention to the weather. I think it's an interesting subject matter for us to attune to every single day in a way that many in our country have completely forgotten to. We think about the weather when we're going to drive somewhere or we're going to take a plane flight or um, if we have a picnic planned or something like that. But the weather is connected deeply to every part and aspect in our of our lives. And in a time of climate change and climate crisis, this is a very important part of actually shifting and changing our way of relating to the world, which is what Love and Revolution Radio really wants to focus on. Yeah, and I think that it's really important, especially right now, because the weather patterns have been so unstable. There are a lot of people in the world. There were dozens of deaths here in the U.S. in the past week as a result of tumultuous weather. They're having floods in the U.K. There are a lot of things going on right now to demonstrate that our world is in a in a state of instability, and I think we need to start looking at how do we address those things on new paradigms, not based on the old paradigms, but in a new way that's going to create some type of safety and security for all, and recognize the significance of um, our connection to our ecosystems. How do people even start that process of of learning to retune and learning to pay attention. Um, you know, we, we want to look at new paradigms. What what are some of those that you are seeing or thinking about? Well, I think it's really about connectivity, that we have become so isolated. We have really followed this model 
uh, this Western model based on this capitalistic um, idea that it's all about individualized success and it's all about individualized ways of living. We all live in these siloed, boxed lives away from each other, disconnected from one another, disconnected from community, and oftentimes disconnected from the earth, which is the source of our survival. And so I think it's about reconnecting, reconnecting with one another, reconnecting to community, reconnecting in meaningful ways with the earth. Many of the problems that we're facing right now are all about our disconnection from one another. You know, we wars going on around the world that's really about our ability to be able to, um, you know, launch these military attacks on people without ever having to see their face without ever having to have any type of connection with them. It's all done by remote. It's all disconnected. And when we have that sense of disconnection, it's much easier for us to lose sight of the sacredness of life. And so it's all about reconnecting, about establishing new bonds of connectivity as we move forward and as we start thinking about what types of new models do we want to create in the world. It's all based in that one aspect of connectivity. I think one of the things that we wanted to talk about today on Love and Revolution are the broad themes that we're trying to cover on this show throughout the course of a whole year and onward into the future with guests and with each other. And that theme of connectivity, I think, is so important. It's, for me, a, a basic difference in many spiritual practices, whether they're rooted in a sense of uh, reaffirming and reestablishing our understanding of our interconnected nature of our reality. We're talking nuts and bolts of biology and chemistry and physics, not just the, the spiritual dimensions of interconnectivity. Mm-hmm. Um, or are they a, a philosophy and a spiritual awareness that is rooted in actually separateness? Because I think we have both circulating around on the earth, although my suspicion is that the mystics of all traditions keep going deeper and deeper into the understanding of radical interconnectivity. Yeah, and I think that it's interesting that science is actually starting to catch up with what these mystics have always known from all traditions, from all backgrounds. There's been all this talk about interconnectivity and interrelatedness. um, You know, I've had my own experiences with that in my own life uh, from a spiritual perspective that uh, kind of made it all fall into perspective for me where I didn't really understand the basics of it. I understood it in theory, but didn't really understand it in an experiential uh, level. But now we're starting to see that science is catching up with this understanding that at the base of things, the very root of our existence, there is a sphere of connectivity that holds us all together with the entire ecosystem. We're all one living system. And I think that when we start thinking about that and start developing strategies for living that are based on our understanding of that connectivity, on our understanding that whatever we do impacts all others, whatever others do impacts us here in our lives, even if we don't feel it immediately and directly, and start building new um, ways of being with one another in the world that are connected to that understanding. And I think that when you start talking about you know, spiritual beliefs, you lose some people because that's not um, where they're grounded. They're not grounded in a particular spiritual belief. But when you're able to t- tie it together to science and t- 
tie it together to social philosophies, then everybody's able to understand the significance of that connectivity because everybody has some point of connection within one of those spheres of influence that guides them. And I think that that's what we're starting to see now is the emergence of that understanding on a far greater level. So we're seeing programs emerge that are connected to uh, local food sovereignty. We're seeing energy sovereignty programs emerging. We're seeing people creating new relationships with this system of monetary exchange. And, you know, we have time banks. We have um, a lot of cooperatives that are developing around the world. We have alternative banking systems that are emerging that are becoming very successful. And they're also steeped in this myth that we've all heard of called true democracy, which we have yet to see. And I think that that's one of the things that we're going to be exploring as we go forward is how do all of these types of programs actually converge to create an entire movement forward that is more sane, more humane, and more harmonious for all of us. And I'm really excited about the prospects of talking to some of the people that are actually engaged in some of these programs and that are making them work in their local communities. I think also another dimension of the excitement for me around this show is the opportunity to turn my gaze not just to uh, the second part of the show's title, Revolution, which... Um, you know, we cover a lot on Occupy Radio uh, previously in this time slot, but also the the importance of love. That love is this right. revolutionary yet extremely basic concept to human existence. And like you were mentioning about spiritual beliefs, a lot of us are not so grounded in love anymore. That we've right. sadly learned a very different way of being and relating in the world. And with the, all the cruelty and the su the suffering and the systems of injustice that we uh, are constantly battered by, almost no matter who you are in this world, I would say that almost everyone on the planet is suffering from some form of abuse by the systems that we are a part of. Um, that it's hard to believe in love these days, and yet mm. perhaps it's fundamentally necessary. I think that, uh, like so many things in life, uh, with love, we have to kind of fake it until we make it, almost. One of the things that we've forgotten is the second part of who we are, humankind. We've forgotten the kindness piece of that equation, and we need to be able to reincorporate that into our daily lives. And like you said, there's so much cruelty and there's so much fear-based hate that's being perpetuated around the world. We're seeing a lot of that rise up in politics right now. And, you know, getting back to this basic fundamental principle, this core value that all world philosophies speak of, no matter what they're steeped in, and it's, it comes back to love. And that really is about what we have to share with others, what we have to give to others, um, how we can behave in ways that not only shows our deep care and concern for them, but also recognizes our shared humanity, recognizes the similarities that we all have, the simple desires that we all have to live a life free from harm with some basic dignity intact. 
And I think that one of the things that is most important right now, if not the most important thing, in my mind, it is the most important thing. And that is for us to go back to that particular core value that we all share at some point in our history, which is, you know, this understanding of love one another, you know, whether it's the golden rule, whether it's, you know, love your neighbor or your enemy as you love yourself, uh, whatever it is that you uh, have kind of attached to wrong, to make it more than a day saying, but to make it a way of life from pop culture to be irreverent. Um, it's part of the pop culture to uh, ridicule and to shame. And people are learning through a lot of this stuff that you see on reality TV to kind of um, elevate themselves above others by putting others down. And that's become the way of things within the pop culture. And I think that, you know, the greatest revolution that we're going to be a part of is the revolution of love, the reemergence of love in real fundamental ways in our everyday lives. The way we walk, the way we talk, the way that we engage others, the way that we connect to the world around us, that that is at the core of the type of revolution that we're going to be talking about on the show. So it's not necessarily love and revolution. It's a love revolution. And that's what all of the work that you and I are engaged in is steeped in. And that's what the work that we want to focus on is steeped in is this need for a reemergence of a real core of deep communal love that needs to be perpetuated around the world, needs to go viral. I think one of the things that you you just brought up for me is this concept from Buddhism and other general systems theory of mutual causality, that Mm -hmm. it's neither one nor the other causing the other, but both arising together. And for me, that's very much at the heart of love and revolution, that there is no really deep radical systemic revolution without love really being a part of that. And conversely, there... There is, love is not this anemic, pale, you know, send a Hallmark Valentine card from the heart of the corporate capitalist system to somebody on Valentine's Day. Love is a deep, revolutionary, radical concept that, um, I think we, we underestimate its strength and its potency. Right now, we're in this very interesting situation with the climate crisis that is so much rooted in separateness, in extractivism, in capitalism, in corporate uh, greed, and that all of those things have a common source of development. It's not the beginning of these things, but it's a turning point uh, for them along the way of a misinterpretation of Darwin's uh, theories of evolution and the uplifting of this value of competition, of survival of the fittest. This is a concept he mentioned just a few times in all of his work, and it pales in comparison to the number of times that he mentioned cooperation, collaboration, um, compassion as a a set of principles and values shaping and forming everything we know about our world, the way that evolution happens, the way that species and systems emerge together, that work together on the planet. And so it's no 
it's a very interesting moment that here we are at this crisis of the heart, a crisis of understanding our interconnectivity, and we are also in the midst of the greatest ecological crisis that humanity has ever faced in our thousands and thousands of years of, of evolution. On a very bio biological level, this thing we call, call love uh, that we can also look at the angles of compassion and cooperation and collaboration as aspects of love is really very much at the root of the problems that we face. If we look at some of those systems that you mentioned earlier, Sherry, um, the, the time banks, the new economic systems, the local food, uh, these are systems that are sh shifting from patterns and behaviors of separation, competition, dominance, into cooperation and collaboration. And this is what makes this time period on Earth actually one of the most exciting time periods we've ever been a part of, probably one of the more terrifying ones as well. I agree. And I think that, you know, one of the things when I think about the work that I do in the world and I think about my place, you know, within this sphere of existence, this whole idea of love is really, you know, this deeper love, like you said, it seems like the romantic hallmark type of love. That's not what we're talking about. But looking at it as a really deep form of love, like we look at deep ecology as um, you know, something that really recognizes the inherent worth of living beings, regardless of their utility, you know, um, and looks at how these modern human systems and societies need to be radically restructured in order to honor that inherent worth um, and tied to this ethos about deep ecology as well, you know, this um, whole notion of looking at, I can't remember, there was a, one of the founders of Deep Ecology talked about soil, spirit, and society, you know, recognizing that we crop up from this ground that we're born into and that we make our um, living, essentially, we find our sustenance from that same soil, but we're also connected to something larger. And out of all of that, we actually create and formulate these societies that are based on these shared values. And like you said, we've had this unspoken shared agreement to continue these cycles of domination and conquest and destruction through our silence, through our, you know, uh, ambivalence through our lack of awareness, but right now we're at a really exciting time, like you said. It also seems frightening, but I believe that it's a time of real revelation because, you know, the sun is at 12 noon right now and all the things that have been hidden in the darkness are coming into the light. And we have uh, been seeing a lot of things that are very disturbing, that are very frightening. And it's not that these things haven't existed. They've just been hidden from our view. But now they're coming into our view, which gives us a really rare opportunity to be able to address them and to heal them, which is what makes it so exciting. And it's causing the awakening of people all over the planet who are starting to understand. We just had, you know, and a great example of this is COP21. You know, we just had this huge climate uh, summit, which really was nothing more than the promotion of the carbon industry. 
of the commodification of our air, taking, you know, these individual parts of our ecosystem and trying to break them down into saleable parts. And the people that participated in that event um, weren't able to fool anybody with all of their promotion and all of their talk about creating real climate solutions because people are really aware now that we're part of an interconnected system, that you can't displace pollution in one place by claiming that there's clean air in another place because it's all part of one interconnected system and that we can't take our our ecosystems and break them apart into commodified saleable parts without there being an impact on the larger whole. And so, you know, people are starting to realize that across the board that, you know, we're all part of this interconnected whole and we can't continue to break apart our existence into these saleable commodified pieces and expect for there not to be an impact on the larger systems that we're a part of, whether that be our our ecosystems or our societies or our local communities, that we have to start recognizing how that all comes together and how our decisions on a daily basis impact the projection um, of the world going into the future. The COP21 is such a great example uh, to to really help us understand the depth of the the revolution that we're talking about, that for a couple hundred years, 300, 400 years, somewhere in that range, we have really determinedly shifted from uh, Earth-based traditions and cultures through the process of conquest and colonization, uh, which also affected Europe as well as North America. For many of our listeners, we think about North America when we say those words, or Africa, or many of the colonies of Europe, but Europe went through its own colonization uh, process as well. But in the last hundreds of years, we've been really shifting from Earth-based traditions really deeply into this separated, um, categorized, uh, atomized, um, take apart the pieces and and label them all, and then sell them, as you mentioned, has been a big part of that process. But we're at a crisis from that behavior, just as if somebody decided to take apart our very bodies and say, here is a finger of Rivera's son, here is her red hair, here are her hazel eyes, here are uh, her left leg, her right leg, you would very quickly find that Rivera's son cannot exist at all if you take apart the pieces of what mm-hmm. I am. That it's actually the pieces working together and living and breathing and functioning together that gives rise to the beingness that can have this conversation. And that in itself is part of the beingness of you and I speaking together and the right. the earth that sustains us, gave us our food this day, um, gave us our water that we drink, the air that we're breathing in, even as we're talking to one another, and the very system of communication that is bringing our words through many layers of technology to reach the original human technology of ears of our listeners all across the country. You know, I heard this story that has been really impactful for me, because when we start talking about um, all of these things, uh, it becomes somewhat frightening. Uh, and sometimes we can feel like we've lost control. And I think that one of the things that 
continuously gives me strength is to go back to the teachings that I've received from my elders and uh, the wisdom keepers from my community and from my tradition. And one of the stories that came out of uh, one of our meetings recently was from a woman who is a, a water carrier, a water protector, a beautiful Anishinaabe woman. And she told a story about uh, repatriation ceremony. Uh, repatriation is when you uh, collect the remains of one of the ancestors that's being kept in a museum or in somebody's private collection. And you actually bring those remains back home and you give them a proper burial. That's what the repatriation process is. And so they had um, collected these remains and they were bringing them home for a proper burial. And in the middle of the ceremony, one of the women that was participating heard a man speaking to her. And what he said to her was, we dreamed you into the future. And so that ancestor wanted her to know that they had dreamed into the future. And I think that when we think about what our role is in addressing some of these huge problems that we have right now, this value of ethics, morals, and Christ, you know, um, there's a, a crisis here that exists um, around our ethics and our morals and our values in relation to how we see one another and how we see the world um, as this broken system that's all taken apart into these commodified pieces, like you said, eventually that that body, that larger body is going to die. And so we all are feeling the stress of the distress that Mother Earth is in right now in our own bodies. And we are oftentimes uh, overwhelmed by that, especially if we're empathic in, by nature. And I think that it gives me strength to know that the ancestors dreamed us into being because that tells me that we also have the ability, we have the power um, to dream a new future, new generations of people into being. And as we're doing that, as we're imagining what that future might look like, what we would want for them to be able to step into we can start laying the foundation for that with the choices that we're making in our own lives, that we do have the ability to create a more sane, humane, and equitable future for our grandchildren and our grandchildren who are coming after us, that we do have the potential and the ability to be able to change these systems that are all man-made. So we have the ability to incorporate more of... Um, you know, this, what I view as the feminine energy, which is about creation and life and nurturing life, and match that up and line it up with all of this masculine, aggressive, dominating energy that we've seen in the world so that we can balance both of those energies and start moving forward in a way that really honors life. Because a lot of the systems that you see that are in play right now, the military-industrial complex, the way that politics has become so vitriolic and volatile, you know, the way that we are irreverently speaking about one another in the public sphere, you know, all of those types of things are really steeped in this um, really hate-filled, angry, 
destructive mindset. It's all about tearing apart, whether you're tearing somebody down personally, whether you're tearing apart the earth to extract um, fossil fuels or ores from the earth, uh, whether you're destroying somebody's country uh, by bombing it. All of that is steeped in these ideas and this kind of uh, rampant model of destruction that we've been operating under. And it's time for us to start really shifting that into a model that is really supportive of creation and of life and of nurturing life. And I think that, you know, when we recognize that we have the ability to participate actively in creating a new future and dreaming new generations of people into being, it's an incredibly empowering thing. And those are the types of things that I want to use to guide me going forward as I'm working to build this new uh, way of being in the world. And I think that it's something that I tell that story often because I think it's something that can also help guide others to recognize what their power is in being able to create something new that's really based in creation and life and mutual support of other living beings. And we'll come back to that theme in just a moment after we take a quick break for a station ID. When God stood before you with her hands on her hips, she said, I'll accept none but loving words from your lips. She said, everything changes with conviction like this. One of the things about love and revolution as a pair of words is that you can't escape the truism, means or ends in the making. Everyone from Gandhi to your favorite philosopher on the block has said that, and it's very true. So every week on Love and Revolution, we'll be featuring stories of nonviolent struggle, because if you're going to pair love and revolution together, there's really only one way to work for that kind of change, and that is with the tools of nonviolence. Now, the good news about nonviolence is that it's being used all over the world in increasing numbers and with increasing success rates. The book by Erica Chenwith and Maria J. Steffen called Why Civil Resistance Works points out that in types of struggles that have maximalist goals, that is, expelling dictators, ending foreign invasions and occupations, these kind of rather large revolutionary-scale struggles, Nonviolent struggle is proving itself to be twice as successful as the use of violence. And not only that, but it's succeeding in about a third of the amount of time with a fraction of the casualties. This is a remarkable finding, and it changes everything about what we think about how conflict should be waged. But now, nonviolent struggle is not a new concept. It's been around since the very beginning of human civilization. And while we can document hundreds of cases in the past hundred years alone, uh, it's important to remember how far back in history this type of waging struggle goes. Now, the very first strike, nonviolent strike being one of the, the key types of nonviolent actions that are used, The first labor strike was recorded in 1170 B.C. 
in Egypt. When Egyptian workers went on strike because they weren't getting their bread and pay, and、um, they didn't like their insufficient ra- rations, one day all the workers simply laid down their tools and marched out of the necropolis they were building for、uh, King Ramses the Third, and said they wouldn't work until they got their food rations. Now this was very successful.、Uh, they did indeed win their labor strike, and that was the first recorded strike in the history of humankind. We don't know before then, except through oral stories, but we do know that the first general strike. Now the difference between a general strike and a、uh, one type of strike, such as a labor strike, is that in a general strike, everyone stops working. The very first one. The folks who invented the general strike were the plebeians of Rome. Now, in 484 BC, the plebeians were a little upset about their political situation. They didn't have rights. They, the patricians, were in charge of the political system.、Uh, they weren't protected from things like slavery and debt,、um, and so they decided to launch a series of nonviolent actions. They didn't term them this way in that time, but they used、uh, non-cooperation. Parallel institutions, demonstrations, disruption tactics that disrupted everyday life, and other actions. When those themselves weren't enough to meet the demands, the plebeians quit Rome en masse, shut down the farms, shops, and production centers, and climbed up to the sacred mount, setting up camp until their demands were met. They got political power, protection from debt, and、uh, protection from enslavement. This is a rec- The earliest known general strike in 484 BC. Know your nonviolent history; it may change your life. Love and revolution. So, Sherry, when we left off,、uh, we were talking about the importance of this story about regrounding us and and reframing the times that we、uh, are experiencing ourselves into. And one of the things you mentioned was. The concept that the ancestors dreamed us into being today, and that it's important for us to spend some time actually dreaming our own descendants into being, is a very intriguing concept because I think many people are out there in the world、uh, dreaming up the apocalypse, not because they're you know longing for the great rise to heaven and the sending to hell of everybody else, but because nobody else is putting forth another story that. We're being told everything is in disaster, everything is in crisis,、uh, everything is in destruction and falling apart, and that we look ahead at the very near distant future. When I travel and I do workshops、um, with、uh, older people, they are all deeply concerned about their grandchildren. If they're、yeah. not already concerned about their children's lives,、um, and that's that's heart wrenching to see these elders. But what's really incredible is when the elders start to move into action, because they understand that if they don't act today, the future for their grandchildren is quite bleak. But one of the things that we're not doing enough of is telling ourselves the story of this time as if we're. Twenty, forty, fifty, a hundred years in the future, and we're looking back on this time period and how we walked through this time, how we navigated it, what happened. You know, we didn't share with our listeners yet much of our history, and I, I hope we get to in this part of the show、uh, because I, I'd love to 
get, uh, introduce you a little bit more to them, but they should know by now that I'm a novelist, and one of the things I spend a lot of time doing is looking over stories and retelling them over and over and over again until the steps of change along the plot are commensurate with where the plot is going, what the outcome of the story wants to be. If we want a happy ending, we need to tell the steps of change to get us from the crisis at the start of the story to the um, the new world at the end of the story. And I think that's one of the things that I'm personally hoping to help us all do here on Love and Revolution Radio is talk about some of the steps, talk about the vision of where we're going, but also the the incremental changes along the way. Now, incremental is kind of a an interesting word to use for that because these are rather large incremental steps in a short period of time. They have to be deep and wide and sincere and profound as well. That uh, we don't have time for baby steps. What we need is um, adult steps, maybe big, mm-hmm. full-bodied human steps in this. Now, one of the things I, I hope you'll share with the listeners is you spoke about the elders and some of our listeners mm-hmm. will know your background and some won't. So maybe you could share a little bit about that. Well, I'm a, a native woman. I'm been a webskate from the Penobscot nation. And I grew up with a very strong cultural and traditional heritage that was very much a part of my life and have had the opportunity to work with and to learn from elders from all over the Americas through um, some of my advocacy work with the American Indian Institute uh, and their Healing the Future program and also through my organization, the Land Peace Foundation. And I'm also, um, I guess, I, I think I get more out of this relationship than, than they do, so I, I am leery of saying that. I'm an advisor uh, to the Indigenous Elders and Medicine People's Council of North America. And um, I think that mostly they advise me and guide my way of life. And so when you start talking about stories, um, I always think of the stories that I grew up learning. And all of those stories teach us a different set of values. And if we think about the stories that have been told throughout history, um certainly in this country and other colonized parts of the world, that those stories glorify a lot of the things that have led to the destruction of our world. So the importance of telling new stories, of creating a new storyline, of creating a new vision and a new projection for the future is really critical right now. One of my favorite quotes is by uh, M. Scott Momaday and The quote is, we are what we imagine. Our very existence consists in our imagination of ourselves. Our best destiny is to imagine, at least, completely, who and what and that we are. The greatest tragedy that can befall us is to go unimagined. And right now, we are going unimagined, because what we're doing is we're simply perpetuating old stories. We're not creating anything new. We're not projecting into the future a new way of being. We're not outlining for future generations the steps that need to be taken to rehumanize us, to reconnect us to the kindness part of humankind, to reconnect us to our understanding of our interrelatedness and interdependence upon one another and upon the entire ecosystem, this one living system that we're all a part of. 
And I think that it's fundamentally important to start telling those stories, to start creating those stories, and um, to start living those stories right now. You know, there's a wonderful Diane de Prima poem called Rant, and it's very long, but the refrain of it says, The only war that matters is the war against the imagination. All other wars are subsumed within it. Mm-hmm. And like Mamadeh's quote, it's very true that uh, we find ourselves, we bring ourselves into being, for better or for worse, through the stories that we're constantly telling and repeating to ourselves. One of my um, practices that I do whenever looking at a film from Hollywood or a book like The Hunger Games or even some of the the dynamics in Harry Potter is look deeply at the myths and the stories that we are telling ourselves within our pop culture. How are Mm -hmm. we telling, what is the story that we're telling ourselves and is it beneficial? Are we assuming that say violence and warfare fighting and killing one another is actually going to bring us the resolution to our problems or is it going to sink us deeper into problems? Well, I mean, if you think about mythology, and what mythology has taught us. I mean, go back to some of the uh, old Greek mythology, and you have, um, what was the name of the beast with the multiple heads? Um, the Hydra, the many-headed yeah, Hydra. Yeah, you, you'd cut off its head, and more heads would grow in its place. And the more times you cut off its head, the more heads that would emerge. I mean, this is the way of violence. That story was telling us that you can't address, you know, issues of violence with more violence because it only creates more violence. And so we have been perpetuating these stories of violence for hundreds and hundreds of years. And it's time for us to recognize that we are the authors of those stories, that we are the ones with the pens in our hands and that we have the ability to write a new story going into the future. And you and I are both writers. And one of the things that I think that we both do really well is we weave um, these words into a pathway that people can follow. And I think that, you know, everybody needs to start doing that and being conscious of that. When we talk about our oral traditions, um, one of the things that is in in the book that I'm finishing, Sacred Instructions, is this um, understanding that our words have power. There's alchemy in our words and that we maintained an oral tradition because there's a vibrational frequency in the language that actually imprints the, um, the reality that we're living in and helps to frame it in a certain way so that our words become our reality. And so when we think about the vibrational frequency of what we're putting out into the world, we have to understand the power that our words have. And that's why we maintained an oral tradition. And it wasn't because we didn't have the capacity to be able to translate our knowledge into written form. We certainly had um, forms of writing that existed, but we understood the importance of being able to speak our truth into reality and that when we spoke those words, it actually had power. The stories that we've been telling have had a certain amount of power in the world and that power has been largely destructive. 
And so we need to begin framing stories and framing um, a new reality based on a new way of thinking, on a conscious effort on the part of all people, all people who are awake, certainly, um, to make a conscious effort to start speaking a new reality into being. And however we tell our stories, whenever we sit around, um, glorify those who are living peacefully. Glorify the people who have avoided engaging in war and have resolved their problems in ways that were nonviolent. You know, there are all kinds of things that we can start doing. We can start speaking truth to the lies that our history has told us, such as the celebration of people like Ponce de Leon and Christopher Columbus. Um, we can start glorifying instead those people who have dedicated their lives to love, to peace, to cooperation, collaboration, and honoring life. I think one of the things about stories is that when we don't know our stories, or if we only know one segment of stories, for instance, we know all the war and stories that you can possibly imagine. That's what right. U.S. history uh, as taught to school children across this country, is a history of, history of war. Uh, when we don't know the converse, when we don't know the real stories of, say, nonviolent struggle, uh, we lose the tools, we lose the knowledge, we lose the wisdom of this whole other way of resolving conflicts that is very practical, very pragmatic, and as we're finding out now through science and research, actually works twice as often as violence in many of the situations that it's used in. So I think, you know, another thing that we I want to talk about with stories is that uh, you're reminding me that of a conversation I had with my mother recently, remembering the countless hours spent with her large Irish Catholic family sitting around a wooden table with her seven siblings, my five siblings, our dozens of cousins, and the same stories that were told over and over and over again. Okay. And stories of, of hardship and courage, um, not all the most beneficial stories, but uh, also with themes that are very important to how our family is shaped and structured. And I think many of our listeners uh, will also have had that experience. It might not be around a big Irish Catholic kitchen table. It may be just the one story that your father always repeated to you. These stories are very powerful in our psyches, in our minds, in our lives. We repeat them to ourselves unconsciously. And one of the practices of um, all contemplative practices, actually, it doesn't matter what tradition or philosophy or faith you're coming out of, contemplative practices are about being able to still your mind and focus and see what those stories are. Now, this is not just a practice that we can do on a meditation cushion, but also when we're scrolling Facebook, looking at each post as a story, and what is that story telling us? When we're watching television, the news, the news is a great place to look at the stories that are not just being told, but are not being told. And one of the things that I hope that we do with this show, Love and Revolution Radio, is expose an ever-widening circle of our friends and listeners that we help to share the news of this show with uh, to the stories that will help us get through this time, that will help us shift and transition our cultures to something that is rooted in compassion and collaboration, that 
uh, it's not just you and I, Sherry, talking together, because we do that all the time, and it's not just you and I and our listeners talking with one another every week. It's also the stories that are retold by our listeners to their friends, their families, uh, they're, the, and the way that they make the story is tangible and real. So we're not just telling words, but we're also wordsmithing, bringing words into existence in the, the tangible uh, nuts and bolts realms of our lives. We're going to share bright ideas on this show, and we hope that our listeners will take them and run with them and put them to use in their own communities and be bold and courageous in that way. Absolutely, and I think that it's really critically important to pay attention to the stories that we're telling our young people, the new generations who are going rising up, and to challenge the stories that are being told. You know, if we look all around us, like you said, the news, social media, all of these places, there are always things um, being, stories that are being told that are... Um, in alignment and supportive of this paradigm that we're hoping to move beyond, which is one of destruction and violence. And when we start challenging those things, uh, and it's happening more and more, and uh, at first it came out like with anything that's being uh, suppressed and withheld, at first it comes out with a degree of force, and people were forcefully speaking out against some of these stories that were being told. But now it's starting to even out and to become a little bit more gentle where people are actually able to have conversations around things where there's a difference of opinion. And they're able to have conversations around those things in ways that are really meaningful and that challenge that old way of thinking so that people are able to shift their hearts and minds um, based on the information that they're being given. And I think that, you know, for some people, there's this form of cognitive dissonance that arises when you challenge these old systems because it's so deeply embedded into their minds that this is the way that things are. This is the way that we solve problems. This is how it's always been done. And um, when we are able to engage one another, like if you think of somebody coming at you with a lot of force, your instinct is to pull back. But if somebody comes at you and they're speaking to you gently, your inclination is to lean in. And I think that, you know, the way that we tell our stories and the way that we communicate with one another also has to, you know, um, be conscious. We have to be conscious. We have to be mindful of how we're engaging those discussions. Are we engaging them with the same type of force and violence that has led us to this place that we're in right now? Or are we even shifting the way that we engage one another, the way that we tell our stories, the way that we share our understandings with other people so that it gives them the opportunity to lean in and to have a shift of their own. It gives them space to move. We need to give people space to move. And the only way that we can do that is to not approach them with force. And I think that's a really important point, you know, and one of the things that it makes me think about the title of the show, Love and Revolution Radio, is that each of these words is something that means something in our cultures. And yet, we've only just barely tapped the surface of those meanings. And the depth of them, I think, is something we find when we open that space 
as you were just describing, that we open our arms and our hearts and our minds. Even as we have something to put forward, we put it forward in a gentle way so that all of those around us can find the courage to actually look at it a little rather than having it flung in their face so you have to duck from it. And, you know, what... What in there, that to me, this, this gentle putting forth, but with determination as well. You're not backing down mm-hmm. from the encounter. Right. This delicate balance between, uh, taking a stand and leaving space for the other person, uh, is really at the heart of how I perceive a revolution. Now, every time I say the R word, you know, someone invariably mentions the guillotine. And it's a little bit by generation, but not totally. Um, when I was growing up, being only 33 years old right now, somewhere in the middle of young and old, uh, nonviolent revolutions were happening around the world. There was one per year during my most formative and conscious uh, memories that we mm-hmm. saw the fall of the Soviet bloc. We saw the color revolutions happening. Uh, so my concepts of revolutions are very much... Uh, shaped by this very foggy memory I have as a child of, of these things happening. And I think when we use big words like love, right? When we, we say love, um, I'm sure many of us get these big Hollywood impressions of, of romantic love, star fated lovers, soulmates, all these big things. But love is a deep and wide and broad subject matter that, uh, that right. applies to Friends and grandparents and children and uh, neighbors, trees, the earth. Um, these very revolutionary concepts such as loving a tree. I mean, what a concept uh, that we can love so deeply that it goes beyond the human body. Um, and in fact, this itself is the revolution, as you described, Sherry, early on in the show, that we are at a, a crisis, a crossroads of change. And the way we're going to take the right path is actually perhaps by stepping off the path into this unknown territory for many of us mm-hmm. of opening mm-hmm. our hearts and learning to love the world in all of its complexity and its unknownness and its um, mystery and majesty as well. Absolutely. And I think that that is um, what we absolutely have to do because the time-worn path has led us in a vicious circle. And that circle is spiraling downward rapidly and we're all going down with it. And I think that it's really, really important for us to recognize that even if this idea of a love revolution seems too radical for you to at least acknowledge that the way that things have been done in the past, that this path of violence and destruction and mindless consumption has led us to the brink of um, extinction, that that leaves just a little bit of space for the possibility of something new to emerge. And that the only way that we're going to find that new thing that needs to emerge is to get off from this pathway that is filled with all of these vehicles of destruction and violence and to create something that is new and that is humane and that is equitable and um, it's new and it is radical and it is something that we haven't seen 
in full force, but we've certainly all seen glimpses of it, like you're saying, throughout our lifetimes and through some of the stories that we've heard um, from history and from different contemplative traditions, certainly from my own tradition of storytelling, and um, that it's up to us to amplify those stories and move them forward. And I think that's what we're aiming for here on Love and Revolution Radio is to get on the airwaves every week and to tell these stories with a lot of courage and an unusual courage, the courage to open our hearts, the courage to be vulnerable, the courage to talk about things that we don't usually hear over the airwaves, things such as this intersection or interconnection between love and revolution, uh, and this idea that only by doing the most deeply radical uh countercultural to the dominant culture, uh, concepts, will we be able to move forward through this time? For me, this is a very exciting and uh, terrifying way to go forward mm-hmm. with this show. But this is the brink of evolution. Change is, is yeah. always exciting and exhilarating and terrifying all at once. And I think there's a very good likelihood that the human species, or Homo sapiens sapiens, will not survive this time period. But we may evolve, and we may go forward as a whole new kind of creature that we haven't even quite spent enough time imagining what that's going to look like. Yeah, and I think that one of the things that is really exciting um, in this terrifying uh, madness that we're all enmeshed in is the possibility of what that might be. But also, I think it's really exciting that perhaps for the first time in history, we recognize, we're consciously aware of the fact that we are on the brink of an evolutionary leap and that we can actively participate in guiding the direction of that leap. And that's one of the things that we hope to be able to do with Love and Revolution Radio. And that is going to conclude our first show. We hope all of our listeners out there have enjoyed this as much as we have. We'll be bringing on guests next week, so be sure to tune in and bring a friend along with you. And I'd like to say thanks this week to my wonderful co-host, Rivera Sun. And before we roll on out, I'd like to thank our editing producer, David Getchy, Sierra Lupe. You can reach us via the Love and Revolution page on Rivera Sun's website www.riverasun.com and we are Love and Revolution Radio on Stitcher and iTunes. We also want to thank Diane Patterson for the incredible theme music for this show, Love and Revolution is the name of the song. You can find Diane's work at www.dianepatterson.org For Love and Revolution Radio, I'm Rivera Sun. We are off to a great start in a brand new year. We'll be bringing on guests next week to talk about the heart of change and changing the heart. Maybe you'll be telling all your friends to tune in to Love and Revolution Radio by the time we talk to you next week. (laughs) 